I'm Dr. Eva Nelson with AltaThera. I'm the Director of Education and Training, and I have here with me today Dr. Jared Bunch. And Dr. Bunch, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time and effort. And I'd like for you to do just a short introduction of yourself. Sure, and it's my pleasure to be here. So I'm Jared Bunch, and I'm at the University of Utah. I'm a, a professor of medicine there and the Associate Chief of Cardiology. And, uh, have a long-standing interest in heart rhythms and, and how we manage them and treat them, and have been involved both from cellular work to translational work to now clinical work, and mainly focusing on how we can get people to feel better and live longer and, and, and experience a good quality and quantity of life. So. Well, that's great. Thank you. So I have a few questions to ask you. First of all, let's start simply. Um, describe a typical AF patient, AFib patient for me, and then let's move forward and do a typical SOTOLAW patient. Yeah, so a typical atrial fibrillation patient, one thing that we're seeing is it's changing a little bit over the past five to 10 years, but it's typically somebody in their mid to later 60s. They often, particularly in, in Utah, have high blood pressure or uh, are overweight, and we have a lot of sleep apnea. About 50% have sleep apnea. So it's typically they're a, a little bit more often men than women. We do see women, but they they come in a little bit later, so they're a little bit older, and they're usually on three to four medications. And about uh, 20 to 30 percent have found out they had atrial fibrillation by going to urgent care, the emergency room, or seeing their physician. And and the other two thirds are diagnosed elsewhere, either by a smartwatch, another reason they're being sought, being seen for medical care. How about the Sotolol uh, patient, a patient that you would choose Sotolol for? Sotolol we often consider based upon the presence of other disease. So a typical Sotolol patient often won't qualify for a class 1C agent, which is like flecainide and propofidone. They're a little bit easier to administer because you can start them out patients. But in those patients, you can't have significant hypertrophy and you can't have coronary artery disease. So most of our Sotolol patients have coronary artery disease or didn't do well on one of the other agents, in particular the class 1C agents. Okay, thank you. So can you talk a little bit about the one-hour infusion, uh, Sotolol IV, versus the traditional three-day oral uh, protocol, especially as it pertains to the hospital and to the patient? Yeah, so uh, we were fairly traditional on how we, uh, we administered Sotolol. It was all inpatient, and I know there's a lot of variability across the U.S., and uh, I also tended to be conservative. So our typical load was 80 milligrams twice a day as a goal, and we would shoot for at least two days in the hospital, sometimes three. And uh, rarely we would do 120 twice a day, but I know I have colleagues, particularly on the East Coast, where 120 is felt to be the most important dose to get to to make it more effective. And so that was our traditional uh, speech to the, the patients, we're going to keep you there two days, we're going to monitor your QT interval, and then let you go after uh, if everything looks good. If you don't need dose reductions and it appears effective and tolerated. Uh, for IV Sotolol, um, we started using that fairly early on. Our institution had experience in the pediatric population. In fact, our pediatric EPs were very enthusiastic early on just because it has such a predictable metabolism out of the body. It's, it, it doesn't have tissue penetration like some of the other drugs that can cause organ toxicity. So they naturally um, were interested in it. And so we were early on involved with it as well. 
Um, we met with our pharmacists and created a protocol for IV administration over an hour. Uh, initially, it was new, so there was some unfamiliarity to it. Uh, so we had ha we'd assign a fellow or a physician assistant for the whole time, just in case there was anything. Uh, we chose fairly uh, healthy people, and we'd also have an EKG tech there. And uh, but as we gained experience after our first twenty or thirty patients, then we realized that actually we were fairly comfortable with the safety protocol and we could release some of those resources for it. So uh, we became interested in, in protocolized it quite early and it was accelerated a little bit in the time of COVID when we were trying to get people out. And so that became a unique opportunity to really embrace it. And so I would say most of our patients now um, come in for IV Sotolol as either for a dose titration up or to initiate it. So uh, I think it's almost as if you know what my questions are because you're almost answering the next question. So, <laughs> but my next question was going to be, as you instituted IV soda law in, in your institution, did that change the practice patterns? It did. Uh, and there's in each institution, um, you'll have people that are rapid adopters. They like technology. They like new therapies. That's probably a third of people. You have a third of people that don't want to change no matter what, no matter what. You have the people in the middle. And really the success of introducing a new therapy is sort of what you do with the folks in the middle. And so we had a we had a consensus of that we want to try this. I, I clearly in that pattern of early adoptation, I like to, you know, if it's going to work better for the patients and I, and it's safe, I think it's a good thing. And then we we embraced our pharma our pharmacy colleagues and had them <clears throat> had them uh, help write our protocol, help create a model for staffing resources and where they should be. And, and they look at everybody before they come in and help with the dosing. They like, just today I received some emails about a patient coming in next week and like, well, we haven't checked the weight in a while. We should, we need a way and we need to do these things. So they became active team members and helped out quite a bit and actually really wrote the draft of our first protocol. We sort of, sort of, added our two cents, but the, it was pharmacology driven by some of our um, cardiac pharm pharmacologists on our team. So it's a whole team? A hundred percent whole team. Mm -hmm. And everybody who had, you know, the physician assistants were like, are we comfortable? What happens? And, and now everybody's comfortable. And now we have, you know, we've gone through a hundred or so patients, but early on, you know, everybody had some, some uh, hesitancies as we were trying something new, but... So one of the demographics that stood out to me, and you actually mentioned it earlier, were females. And females seem to be up underrepresented in the PEAKS registry as well as many other studies that have been published. So my question to you is, is are females less likely to have AFib? Uh, are they less likely to seek treatment? Or do healthcare practitioners choose other treatments for them because it's well known that females have a longer QTC interval? Yeah, and, and all those questions are, are very good and very relevant. When we look at where PEAK sits with other trials, like some of the recent ablation trials in Cabana, it's about the same. We're, we, with female participation trials in AFib, is about 30 to 40%. So we're, and, um, and I think there's a few things. In the community, um, women are less likely to be referred for a rhythm control strategy. They're often diagnosed later. And I'm hoping that changes because we're pushing diagnosis to the community instead of taking it 
uh, physicians making that diagnosis. It's going to the smartwatches and, and the smartphones. Uh, so hopefully that disparity will improve as well. And then also sometimes some of the, 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 the way the heart remodels and the, the filling pressures when we get in and treat women that come in with atrial fibrillation late, they have this concentric remodeling of the heart, left atrial enlargement, it becomes very hard to treat. And it always makes me think, could have done this five or 10 years earlier, we would be in a, in, in, in a better situation. But then when you look at the outcomes, they're not as good in women. Like the Cabana trial showed a, a, a great benefit of ablation and rhythm control in young men, in young men with heart failure. But if you take women, it was actually trending towards harm. But women were older, and, and so there's a lot of, lot of that. And, and historically, QT prolongation and, and prorhythmia is worse in women than men, and, and those historic concerns are, remain prevalent. And, I, and some of that is our predictability from renal function with different weights, particularly underweight is not ideal. Uh, getting the ideal dose concentration is not ideal. And so um, <clears throat> all those things come together. Multifactorial. Definitely multifactorial. Factorial, and I'm hopeful it's an opportunity to get better because we definitely have to get better. And it starts with, and, and there's even data that when women come and say I have palpitations, <clears throat> the doctors more often think that it's anxiety or stress. If men come in with palpitations, they're thinking heart attack, atrial fibrillation. And so it's even a societal level where we have to get better. But there's fantastic atrial fibrillation support groups and, and educational groups getting messages out. And we just have to change it well, amongst the physicians culture. <laughs> and also in the culture. So, so how does this... Um, how, do, how does the dosing and safety results, how do these affect so low IV going forward? Well, I think it's a few things. One, I, there, the, the, the PEAKS data, the modeling data is helpful. The PEAKS data says it, it works, it's good. Um, we've done an economic analysis that when we, we take costs and we look at the costs because it costs more than oral sotalol. Oral sotalol is a very inexpensive drug. But... The, um, the cost shows that you gain $1,000 if you compare it to two-day stays, you gain $3,000 if you compare it to a three-day stay. So, 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 from a, so we now have IV sotalol data that says it's safe. Uh, we're working on efficacy. The efficacy will be borne out in oral sotalol using a higher dose. And we also have some cost-effective data to say that you, know, you can introduce it into your hospital and not have to to worry about excessive cost. My final question, uh, what are the possible implications going forward with, from the PEAKS study regarding length of stay? Length of stay on that prior train of thought. Again, I, we often think of the benefit of just getting that person out of the hospital sooner. And, and that clearly is a benefit for the, the person and the hospital because we're all, we're all crammed, we're all busy and there's a waiting list to get in. But, there's also, for the hospital system and the physicians, the opportunity cost of the next person coming in. So you have this one to $3,000 savings, and then you have the opportunity of bringing somebody else that needs, needs help. It's not an opportunity to help them, and also, for if you're an administrator, to, to make more revenue for your hospital. So that's a good thing. The PEAKS registry should be published soon, so for people listening, keep an eye on that. And the, the lead author is Dr. Ben Steinberg. So hopefully this will be published so you can see it 
and you all know exactly what we're talking about. Thank you so much. This has been so informative and, and fun. I've enjoyed getting to know you and really appreciate your time and effort. It's been Thank fabulous having you. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Mm -hmm.